We're getting into a new teaching series today, and no, it has nothing to do with Mother's Day. So, um, so yeah, a lot of times we do a mom's message on Mother's Day, and then the guys are like, why did I come to church today? I should have gone golfing. But uh, <laughs> what, what, what? No, no guy ever thought that in church. No. So today's message has nothing to do with Mother's Day, but we're just getting into a new series, and our new series is actually that we're going to be teaching through the book of Genesis. And uh, it's a long book, and so it's going to take some time. We're probably going to be in this teaching series all the way through the summer. Um, But let's talk about why. Why do a teaching series on the book of Genesis? Uh, It's an old book. It it was written a long time ago, and and, and there's a lot of old stuff in it. and, And what's the point? And here is the point. There have been movements in the church, and this is not anything new. In fact, probably the first time this movement happened was back around 200 A.D., and it was started by a guy named Marcion, and so it was called Marcionism. And uh, Marcion, what he believed is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament had completely different natures. And so because the God of the New Testament had a new nature, we shouldn't have anything to do with the Old Testament anymore. And he wanted to completely do away with the Old Testament and, and, and even referring to the God of the Old Testament. And he was so passionate, he even tried to rewrite the New Testament, taking all the Old Testament references out of it. He did everything he could to gain traction and influence within the church, but eventually he was cast out as a heretic. And now... Over 1,800 years later, we still have pastors, even influential pastors of large churches around the world that are telling us we can unhitch from the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. It's outdated. It's obsolete. We just need to focus on the new. And the reason we're doing this teaching series is because Kauai Bible Church, we are going to stand against that. We believe that the entire counsel of the Word of God includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has not changed. God is just as merciful, just as gracious, just as holy, just as loving in the Old Testament as He is in the New Testament. God has not changed. And though we are no longer under the Mosaic law, the Old Testament is not obsolete. In fact, the Old Testament provides the authority for the New Testament. That if you take away the Old Testament, you've actually pulled out the authority from under the New Testament. And so we want to get back to the foundations of the Old Testament, which is the book of Genesis. Right? Paul, in his last writings before he died, wrote that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and exhortation and and, and rebuking and, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. When he wrote that, the only Scripture they had specifically identified was the Old Testament. And he said all Scripture is inspired by God. And so as a church, I want us to go back to the book of Genesis, back to the foundations, and to realize that everything that we believe today as followers of Jesus we can find the roots of it in the Old Testament. And if we don't have that solid foundation of the Old Testament, our faith walk today is really shaky. And so that's why we're doing this, and that's why we're going to dive into this and why I'm passionate about this. The Old Testament is still the Word of God. It is still good for our lives today, and we're still going to study it. So with that being said, we're going to start right from the beginning. So this is the easiest day at church ever to find our passage that we're going to study. 
because we're going to start at Genesis 1-1. So if you got your Bibles, turn to the very first page. If you've got your smartphone app, click on the very top book. Unless you do that new thing now where it puts it in alphabetical order. That just weirds me out. I can't find anything when they do that. But we're going Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the first chapter and even a few verses into the second chapter. But let's start. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called light, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. I love this. God said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. Now, when you read this, you might assume that he just created the sun. But no, he doesn't create the sun until day four. This is day one of creation. There's no sun providing light. It's God himself who's providing light. There is no physical source of the light, and yet there is light. See, I get excited about stuff like this, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. For the sake of time, let's move quickly through the six days of creation. So day one, he created day and night. Day two, he separated the sea from the sky. Day three, he separated the dry land from the sea and created all the plants. Day four, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the, all the lights that we see in the solar system and throughout the universe. Day five, he created the fish and the birds. And day six, he created all the land animals and humans. And let's pick it up here as he's creating humans. Verse 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Moving into chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Here's just a little fun side note for, for studying the Bible. There, there's this whole study called numerology, which means the study of numbers. And some people take it too far, and they just try to dig things out of the Bible that aren't there. But you don't have to take it too far, but there are some numbers that are specific in the Bible that have specific meaning. And seven is actually the most significant of all of them. 
In fact, the number seven appears at least 860 times in the Bible, more than any other number in the Bible. And what is seven symbolic of? It refers to completion or perfection. So if you're ever studying the Bible and you read the number seven, you can stop and ask yourself, what is God teaching me about completion or perfection? And this comes from creation because on day seven, creation was complete and it was perfect. And so seven continues to mean that. So for example, if you're reading the Bible, Jacob had to serve Laban for seven years before he received a wife. Pharaoh's dream had seven fattened oxen and then seven skinny oxen. The children of Israel marched around Jericho seven days, and on the seventh day, they marched seven times. Jesus said we have to forgive one another 70 times, seven times every day. In the book of Revelations, there are seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues. In fact, the resurrection of the saints of God happens when the seventh trumpet is blasted. But when you're stuck, and that's just a little taste of the number seven in the Bible. So just a little side note, when you're studying the Bible, focus on the number seven, but it comes from this idea that God was done, and on day seven, he made it holy and sanctified it because creation was complete and creation was perfect. So the first question there in your notes that we're going to ask today is this, is as we study creation, why does believing in creation matter? Right? Why does it matter that we would study Genesis 1 and that we would believe in creation? Or even to ask the question in a deeper way is, does it matter if we believe in an old earth versus a young earth? And does that really make a difference? And what I mean by that is, if, if you're a young earth believer, then you believe in the literal days of, of creation, and because of all the genealogies in the Bible, we can create a timeline so that we can say that today the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. From the time Adam was created till today, the earth is roughly 6,000 years old, and that would be young earth. Old earth is you believe that the earth is millions, maybe even billions of years old, and that what we have today is the byproduct of, of millions or billions of years of, of the earth being formed and shaped. There are followers of Jesus that believe in an old earth as well. So does it matter? Does it make a difference? Well, let me just give you full disclosure. I'm a young earth believer, okay? So I'm going to share with you from the perspective of believing in a young earth and why it's important. For people that believe in an old earth, there's a few reasons why they believe that way. One, it says that the earth was formless and void in verse 2, right? And they say, well, that could have been like billions of years that the earth was formless and void. The second reason why they, they say the, it could be longer than six days is because the sun wasn't created till the fourth day. So who knows if those first three days were really 24 hours long or not. And they would also point to the argument that to God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And so when the Bible says a day, then maybe it really meant a, a, a long number of years, and, and, and each day was a, a long season of years. But let me give you two reasons why I think it does matter that we believe in creation. And I left you kind of just two blanks there in your notes so you can paraphrase these thoughts however you like. The first one is this, is that for the Bible to have authority over every area of our lives, we must believe that it is the inerrant word of God. Inerrant means no errors. 
It's perfect. There's no mistakes. There is nothing wrong in the Bible. So for us to believe that the Bible has authority over every area of our lives, we must believe that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is the whole counsel of the Word of God, that all of it is God-breathed, all of it is spoken by God, and that all of it is true and correct and accurate. And if we can start deciding what is real and what's not, then we have put ourselves on par with God. So if we can say, well, Genesis 1, that's just mythology. You know, that's just creation mythology. But Genesis chapter 3, that's real. But then 6 through 9, that's fake. That, if we get to decide what's real and what's fake, then we can decide that for the whole Bible. And we can decide what parts we like to follow and what parts we don't, and we put ourselves on par with God. If the Bible is truly the Word of God, then all of it is the Word of God, and we have to accept all of it is true. Look at it another way would be this, is either we interpret science in light of the Bible or we interpret the Bible in light of science. One of these ways puts God above science. The other way puts science above God. And I'm not anti-science. Listen, I love science. I'm a psychology major. I went to school. I loved studying the social sciences. I loved biology class. I loved chemistry class. But everything that I learned in any science class I took, I took it home, and I looked at it in light of the Bible. And I said, what does this teach me about God because of what I already know is true from the Bible? See, but what's happening today is a lot of people are trying to do the opposite. They're taking what scientists say and then trying to reinterpret the Bible in light of what the scientists say. Listen, scientists are very smart. In fact, they're probably smarter than all of us in this room. They're really, really smart. But they're not smarter than God. And I'm going to trust in God's knowledge, not man's knowledge. And so I believe that believing in the Genesis chapter 1 account of creation is critical because it's a part of the Word of God. And either the Word of God is all true or it's not. And I'm going to believe that it's all true. Here's the second reason why I think it's important. To believe that God is very good, we must believe that an original creation did not include death or suffering. To believe that God is very good, we must believe in an original creation that did not include death or suffering. Think about this. When somebody tries to challenge you and say, well, you know, if God is so loving, if God is so good, why is there so much pain and death and suffering in the world? And how do we answer that question? We say, because of the curse of sin. We say, God is loving and good. But the earth is under the curse of sin. And because of the curse of sin, there's pain. And, and there's evil people that make evil choices and do things. And people die. And natural disasters come and wipe out entire cities. And, and, and we're left to wrestle with, with, with what that meant. And we explain it because we live in a cursed and fallen world. But if we're going to say that death and suffering existed before sin, then we just ruined our answer. If death and suffering existed before sin, then that means that God thinks that death and suffering is good. And that is not the God that we serve. Suffering. Believe in a good God. We have to believe in an original creation that did not include death or suffering. So let's look at this. As God was creating, he saw that everything he was creating was good. 
in verse, first read it in verse 4, but it's also in verse 10, in verse 12, in verse 18, in verse 21, in verse 25, and then finally in verse 31, he sums it all up by saying, it's very good. He says it's good. How many times does he say it's good? Seven times. Come on, there's the number seven, all right? Seven times he says it's good. So everything God created, he said it was very good. We also know this, that in the time of creation, animals didn't eat each other. In verses 29 and 30, we just read it. What did God say? He said, I've given you every plant for humans to eat, and I've given every plant for the animals to eat. Animals did not eat each other, so there was no death among the animals eating each other. So animals eating each other is actually a part of the curse of sin. And let's be honest, sometimes when we eat animals, it doesn't feel like a curse. Hallelujah. Okay, so, um, but animals eating other animals, that was a part of the curse of sin. Animals weren't killing each other in the original creation. Death and suffering came from the curse of sin, not from God's very good creation. So to believe in an old earth, what we have to believe is that God created earth and then he stepped away for a billion years and allowed all kinds of death and suffering to take place, entire species to be wiped out in extinction, and then came back a billion years later and said, okay, cool, now I'm going to put man in it. Why would God do that? Why would an all-powerful, all-loving God do that when he had the power to create it in a moment? But think about this. What are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to eternity, right? That's what we sang about today. What is eternity? It's the new heaven and the new earth. It is God's complete restoration back to his original creation, which is an earth with no pain and no death and no suffering and no sin and no evil. So if we're looking forward to a perfect restoration, that means we have to believe that the first one was perfect. And if the first one was perfect, then there was no death or suffering in it. That's why it's important that we believe in original creation. Because otherwise, if we can't trust a God to create it perfectly the first time, why would we be looking forward to it being perfect the second time? There has to be a perfect original that God is restoring us to. And that's why it's important that we believe in the creation story of the Bible. So the second question then is, what does the creation story teach us about God? Three things as I studied this week. What did this teach? The first one is this, is the Trinity. The creation story teaches us is something, the Trinity, which I think this is great because, you know, a lot of people will argue, oh, the Trinity is something that Christians made up later. No, the Trinity is evidence from the very first verses of the very first chapter of the Bible. To understand this, we want to look at what are the Hebrew words that are used for God. There's two main Hebrew words that are used in the Old Testament for God. One is Elohim, and the other is Yahweh, which you also may have heard translated as Jehovah. There's lots of other names for God, but most of them come from these root words. So from Elohim, we get El Shaddai, El Elyon, all these different ones. From Yahweh, we get Yahweh Jireh, Yahweh Nisi, all these different names. But basically, these two names of God are the, are the core root words for the names of God. Why are there two? Because Elohim 
is the general word for God, and Yahweh is the personal name of God. So Elohim is a general noun, Yahweh is a proper noun. It's his personal name. So why is this significant? Here's why. Because Elohim in the Hebrew is a plural word. It's a plural noun. That means that from the very beginning, as Moses is being inspired by God to write the book of Genesis, Moses understood that God existed in a plural nature. Therefore, he used the word Elohim for the word for God. Now, the Israelites, they believed in only one God, right? They declared it in their law, the Lord God, the Lord is one. But yet, even understanding that there was one God, they understood from the very beginning that God had a plural nature. And in that plural nature, what do we find? We find God the Father. We find God the Holy Spirit. Go all the way back to verse 2. What we find, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the earth, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So we have God the Father speaking, and we have God the Spirit moving upon the earth. So from the very beginning of the Bible, we see the plural nature of God. Now we know from John 1.1 that Jesus was there, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him. Nothing that was created was made without Him. So Jesus was there as a part of the plural nature of God, even as God was creating, even though the first time Jesus is mentioned is in Genesis 3 when God says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent's. So we understand from the very beginning. So when people want to say, oh, Trinity, that word's not even in the Bible. You're right. It's actually not. But the understanding of God in a plural nature has been around since the first two verses of the Bible were written. We understand God is Trinity. Second thing we learn about God is we learn about his creativity. His creativity. And I find this amazing. The Hebrew word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 is bara. Bara means to create, but here's the thing. It means to create out of nothing. And so the word bara is only ever used for God. When man makes something, they use a different Hebrew word. But when God makes something, they use bara. Why? Because God could create out of nothing. As humans, we can create, but we have to create out of stuff we already have, right? Newton's law, matter can be neither created nor destroyed. We can't make matter, we can't destroy it, but we can make stuff. I was reading John chapter 1 with Hannah this week, and listen, if you're going to do a Bible study with my five-year-old, you got to be on your toes, because she asks some deep questions. So for Eileen and Angela and Rachel and all of our reef teachers, God bless them, because... They got to be on their toes. So I'm, I'm reading John chapter 1 to her, and we read that all things were created through Jesus. And so she starts looking around. She said, did Jesus make my parakeets? I said, yeah, Jesus made your parakeets. She said, what about the TV? Did Jesus make my TV? And I said, well, Jesus made the guys that invented TV, and Jesus made all of the natural resources that they used to put the TV together. And she was like, oh, okay. But only God can create out of nothing. Only God could speak. And where there was no matter before, now there is matter. 
The other thing that this word bara is used for is a restoration that only God can do. When David in the Psalms was crying out, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me, he was using the word bara. He was saying, God, do something new in my heart that only you can do. No man can change my heart, but God, you can. And so we see the creative power of God that only God can create out of nothing. But we also see the creativity of God. We understand in creation that God wanted to create a species, which is us humans, who had free will, who would choose to walk with him. And so he created us, but he could have dropped us on any old rock. But he created this with all the different plants and all the different animals and all the different colors that we find in nature and all the different colors we find in the animals. And, and we can just appreciate the creativity of God just by sitting outside, driving through the jungle and looking at everything God made. But keep your eyes on the road. All right, but uh, looking at the sunset, sitting on the beach and watching the waves crash, we can be in awe of the creativity of God. And the third thing that jumps out to me about God is his authority. His authority. Think about this. All created matter was subject to his voice. He created matter out of nothing. He is the only one that can violate Newton's law. He is the only one that made matter out of nothing, and then that matter had to obey his voice. And so when he spoke to the matter and said, I want you to form together and form into a four-legged furry animal with horns... That matter had to obey and form together into a four-legged furry animal with horns. When God spoke, matter had to be subject to his voice. This is his authority. And we also learn from reading Colossians that it says that Jesus didn't just make everything. It also says he's in everything. And check this out. He holds everything together. The authority of God is actually holding together every particle in your body. That if God were to choose to release his authority, trillions of atoms in your body would just immediately separate and you would cease to exist. Why? Because all created matter is subject to his voice. You want to think even crazier is this. What is the first thing that didn't obey God's voice? It was us. Humans were the first thing in all of creation that didn't obey God's voice. And yet we were the very ones he made it all for. That we would live for him in this life. Also, I love this, that the ability to name things implies authority. So as God was making stuff, he was naming it. Why? Because he had the authority. So he made light and darkness, and he called the light day and the darkness he called night. And he separated the waters from the dry land, and he called the water sea, and he called the dry land ground or earth. Right? He named everything. Why? Because the ability to name things implies authority. That's why we get to name our kids, because we have authority over them. And then when they're 18, if they don't like their name, they can go change it. Because when they're adults, we don't have authority over them anymore. Right? If you've ever created something, you get to name it. If you write a poem, you get to name it. If you, write a, uh, or you make a piece of art, you get to name it. If you've ever been in an art studio 
and you're looking at a painting and it's kind of abstract and you're kind of looking at it like, what is this? And then you read the little nameplate next to it and they named it Blue Puppies. And you step back, they didn't even use the color blue. Why did they name it Blue Puppies? Because they can, because they have the authority to name it, because they made it. And I love this. In chapter 2 of Genesis, God, after he made Adam and put Adam in the garden, walked every single animal in front of Adam. And what did Adam do? He named them. Why? Because God was giving some of his authority to Adam. And now Adam had the authority to name these animals. I also love it because think about the creativity it took, right? Every animal that walks by, that looks like a cow. All right, we'll call it cow. Next animal, that looks like a pig. Why pig? I don't know. I just thought of pig. All right, we'll name it pig. Like the creativity it took to make up name after name as every animal was passed in front of Adam. Because the ability to name implies the authority, and God had that authority upon the earth. And finally today, what about man? Why is it important that we believe that God created us uniquely from the rest of creation? What do you mean uniquely, Pastor? Well, think about this. We just read the creation story, and God shows us by hand. Every other part of creation, God spoke, and it was. Even the millions of stars that we see throughout the universe, God spoke, and giant burning balls of gas filled the universe. He spoke and created everything, but when it was time to create man, he reached down with his hands and actually shaped us. We are the only part of creation that God shaped with his hands. As I was talking with Hannah, she said, so, so did God take us out of heaven and put us in our mom's bellies? And I said, no, God created you brand new in your mom's bellies. I said, God took part of dad and part of mom and mixed us together and weaved us together and made us brand new. And she got a kick out of that word weave. She was like, weave? Like he sewed our skin on? Yeah, he sewed our skin on. God shapes each one of us by hand. What else do we find? We find that God made us in his image, right? What did God say? He said, let us make man in our image. What do we hear there? God speaking to himself in the plural. Because again, we understand that God always existed in the plural. Let us make man in our image. We are the only part of creation made in the image of God to reflect his image, then when he made us, he breathed his breath of life into our nostrils. We are the only creation that God breathed his breath of life into. Then he gave us authority. We are the only part of creation that God gave authority to. He gave us dominion over the earth. He gave Adam the right to name the animals. He told us to be stewards of the earth and to have authority over it. And then he gave us purpose. We are the only part of creation that God actually spoke purpose to. I made you for a reason. So why is it important that we understand this about creation? First off, because we find our value. There is so much pain and hurt in this world because people don't think they're valuable and they're out there trying to find value every place they can. 
This is why marketing is a billion-dollar industry. Because people are selling clothes and makeup and food and vitamins and, and whatever they can sell. Why? Because they are feeding into our deep needs. More valuable if I buy. And then we watch the commercial and we're like, oh, I'll be more valuable if I buy that product. And we go buy it. But we don't just look for our value in the products. We look for our value in people. We need people to validate us. We look for our value in sexual relationships, and we give ourselves away sexually. We look for our value in aligning ourselves with wrong people that are doing wrong things because relationship is so important that we, and so much emptiness, so much hurt, so much wreckage in this world is caused because we're looking everywhere for value, and we can't find it, and none of it makes us feel good enough. Whoo, that new shirt feels good for a couple of days, but then it's just a shirt. I'm still the same person. But when we can find our value in the fact that the God of the universe created us uniquely, separate from all of other creation, that God cared so much for us that he shaped us by hand, that we are his masterpiece, and we are priceless because of our creator. We don't have to go looking everywhere else. And you can still wear nice clothes, and you can still put on makeup, but you're not putting it on because you're trying to find value. We're full because we know who made us, and we know that we're priceless. And that starts from creation. And if we don't believe in creation, then we can't find our value. Because if we don't believe in a loving God who created us, then we are just a cosmic accident. And there is no amount of product or relationship that could make up for us being a cosmic accident. The second thing is we find our purpose. God made us with purpose. And what that means is everything about you was intended for God's purpose. And so many times we're critical of ourselves and we even want to change things about ourselves and, and because we just, we don't like something compared to people we're comparing ourselves to, which when did God ever tell us to compare ourselves to somebody else? He made us just right for our purpose. And so we say, oh, I wish I was smarter. I wish I was skinnier. I wish I was faster. I wish I was taller. I wish I was a baller. All right, it was just a, all right, a few young people got that. The rest of you were like, what is he talking about? All right, um, I wish I was this. I wish I was that. But exactly who you are is exactly what God intended for you to fulfill his purpose for this life. Part of creation, it says, is male and female, he made them. Listen, society is going to want to come at you and say, well, Christians, you just hate transgender people. You're just so hateful and so mean. No. We just believe that every part of God's creation in our lives was intended for his purpose. And so if he made you to be a woman, that means that being a woman is a part of God's purpose for your life. And if he made you a man, then being a man is a part of God's purpose for your life. And to change that is to deny God's creation, or to change that is to say that God made a mistake, and God does not make mistakes. So we don't hate those people. We simply stand on the truth of God's word, and we say in the love of God, we want you to be who God made you to be, not who you're trying to redefine yourself as. 
You see, if we don't have this foundation in Genesis, we have nothing to stand on. Then we're just hateful and critical. But if we have this foundation to stand on, then we can simply stand on the truth and say, no, God didn't make a mistake when he made you a man. And who you are is a part of what God wanted you to accomplish in this life. And it's time for us to embrace who God made us to be and to find that you can fulfill your purpose in this life in exactly how God made you. We find our purpose. And finally, let me invite the worship team to come back. We reflect God's nature. We reflect God's nature. We were created by God to be a reflection of him. And what that means is, is even in our most broken states, we still have the ability to reflect God. That's why the meanest, most cruel person on the planet could still show love to people. That's why people who have completely rejected God and are as far away from him as they could possibly get can still create beautiful things. Because even in our most broken states, we can reflect the nature of God. But as followers of Jesus, with our spirits and our natures renewed by Jesus and with the Holy Spirit deposited inside of us, how much more should we be reflecting the nature of God? That's why I get ticked off when the assumption is that Christians just do everything second rates. Right? Christian movies, they're kind of crappy, but worldly movies, they're really good. Oh, and Christian music, that's second rate, but worldly music is really good. Why would we assume that? We should be able to reflect the creative nature of God. We should be able to reflect the authority of God on this earth. We should be able to reflect the love of God and the compassion of God in this life. And so if somebody who's lost can create something amazing, then, man, we should be able to create something amazing. And if somebody who's lost can have creative solutions in this world, then, man, we should have even more creative solutions in this world. If somebody who's lost can be loving, then, my goodness, we should be really loving. We shouldn't be second rate. If somebody who's lost does things with excellence, then we should do things with excellence because we reflect our God. We find our value in him, we find our purpose in him, and we can see in this life that we were intended to reflect his nature to this world. Will you stand with me today? I hope I didn't get too nerdy on you today. I get kind of deep into this stuff. But this is, hey, you can clap. Thank you, Donnie. This is a foundation we need. If we can't stand on this, you can see all the trouble that we get ourselves into. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everyone here today. God, I pray that each one of us would begin to see our lives differently. We would begin to see our lives in light of the value that you inherently placed in us. Oh, that we would get our eyes off the world and we would get our eyes upon you, Lord. And we would realize that every good thing in our life comes from you. That every good thing about us comes from you. That everything we find on this world is fleeting. It's like a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. But the value that you put in us, God, that never changes. Help us to see that value. And let us walk in that, God. Let it transform how we live our lives, how we see ourselves, how we behave, the things we say about ourselves, the things we say about others. God, get our eyes off of other people. Help us to stop comparing ourselves. And let our only comparison 
be comparing ourselves to the person you created us to be? God, am I becoming more like the person you created us to be? God, am I coming closer to fulfilling the purpose you created me for? If I'm doing that, then nothing else matters. Let everything else fade away, Lord. Help us, God, to put you first. Help us to put you above everything. We don't have to explain you to scientists. God, we just worship you and put you above everything. And we let everything in our lives reflect your word. We let everything in our lives be interpreted by your word. And we will stand on the solid rock that Jesus promised us. We thank you for that, Lord. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come today. If you'll come forward, we've got a team of people that want to pray for you. They're excited to pray for you. If anything in this message spoke to you today, if you've been dealing with an emptiness or an insecurity because you've struggled with your value and the places you've looked for it, I want to invite you to come forward for prayer today. Oh, let God fill your spirit and fill your heart with the value that you can find only in Him. If you've struggled with your purpose, you've struggled with being critical of yourself because you haven't liked who you are, come forward for prayer. Be set free from that today. If you would just like to reflect more the glory of God, come forward for prayer. If you need to get God back on top in your life, come forward for prayer. If you need anything today, you need healing, you need God to work in your family, come forward today. We want to pray with you.